Good morning. I'll tell you what, it's nice to come back to Pippin. The kids were excited when I told them we were going to get to come back this morning and actually be back again this evening, hopefully to share another lesson with you if the Lord wills for us all to live that long. Um, it does. It feels like coming home, and I appreciate the elders for asking me to come and speak to you again. Bear with me for just a minute. I want to read a little story to you. It was the early 1980s. There was a Hollywood production company. They approached the Mars Candy Corporation, and they wanted to make a deal with them. So this production company was in the process of making the second movie that they had ever made before, and they were needing somebody to partner with. Um, they were wanting some promoters. They were wanting uh, the Mars company to help to advertise the show for them, maybe on their candy wrappers, and they were going to do some different things for them. And so they approached them and said, hey, we want you to partner with us. We want you to become one of our sponsors. Um, we will use your name um, in doing different things, and we want you guys to, to help us as well. Well, the executives of the Mars Candy Corporation, they got together, and they talked about it, and they decided, you know what, we're not real sure we want to do this. We don't really know a lot about these guys. Let's, let's just hold off for now. So they went back and told this production company, said, we appreciate it, but we're going to pass. Production company didn't give up. They went over to one of Mars's competitors, which is the Hershey Company. And they told the Hershey Company the same thing. They wanted to make the same deal with them. So the executives at Hershey, they got together and they talked about it, and they said, you know what, we'll do it. And so the Hershey Company set aside about $1 million. Now remember, this is the early 80s. They set aside $1 million that they would use to help promote the movie with. And at the same time, what the Hershey Company got in return is they got exclusive rights to advertise this movie on their candy wrappers. And not only that, the production company said, we will also place your product into the movie. We'll do some product placement so that on the big screen, everybody will get to see your candy. And so the movie got made. In 1982, this movie came out. And it wasn't long into the movie that executives sitting there watching the release of it, there's our candy. Our candy's on the big screen. Everybody's going to get to see it now. This is great. But it didn't take long for their candy to actually become synonymous with the movie. When you think of that movie today, a lot of people think of this candy from the Hershey's company. Because a lot of us remember this little boy named Elliot. That he was walking through his house placing small piles not of M&Ms from the Mars Company, but of Reese's Pieces from the Hershey's Company, as he was leading this little alien through his house that we affectionately today know as E.T. What a missed opportunity for the Mars Company. We could think of the movie E.T. today and not think of Reese's Pieces, but instead think of M&Ms. But they passed on it. Did you know that the sale of Reese's Pieces skyrocketed? because of that movie. I mean, it, it became mainstream at that point and actually became a major competitor of M&M's because of that one movie. What a deal that they made and what a deal that the Mars Company passed on. You know, we make decisions in our life sometimes and we'll think back as like, wow, I can't believe I did that. I, I, I can't believe I agreed to do this thing. I can't believe I passed on something like that. Why would I ever do that? Uh, several months ago, and I, I think I've mentioned this here before, that I enjoy listening to podcasts. Various different things. Some, sometimes I listen to podcasts of various sermons. I heard one several months ago by uh, Brother Kyle Butt. And I think everybody's familiar with Brother Kyle. Um, deals a lot with Apologetics Press. 
and other things. And he preached a sermon that me really made me stop and think about decisions that I make in my life. And, and so I will say that a lot of the material from this um, was kind of inspired from that sermon that he gave. And I, I hope to help all of us to think about decisions that we make in our life as well. All right, so when you think about a bad deal, what do you think about? What constitutes something as being a bad deal? So let's have a little scenario here. Hopefully this will help to explain it a little bit. I have a nice little crisp $10 bill here. Everybody remembers that game show, Let's Make a Deal, right? They've tried to remake it a couple times, but let's make a deal. So Eddie, I'm going to give you $10. But, will you make a deal with me? I am holding in each hand another bill. So I have two bills right here. Do you want to make a deal? Would you rather have two bills instead of one? All right. He says he'll do it. So I have in my hand two kind of wadded up, rolled up one dollar bills. All right. That's not a good deal for Eddie. He had $10 right here and just gave it up for two. But what you got two you have two bills now, you just had one. I remember it wasn't it wasn't long ago that my kids would have loved that deal. I've got two bills in my hand. I have two monies. You only have one money. Therefore I'm richer than you are. It's because they didn't understand the value of money. They didn't understand the value of what they were holding in their hand. And I I did already tell Eddie he can't keep this money. I did prep him for this, so because the money doesn't belong to me, it's Avery's money. I didn't, ha I didn't have any money in my wallet this morning, so I had to borrow some from her. But we all understand the concept of a bad deal. A bad deal is really when you give up something that is worth more money. Make sure I say that right. You take something of a lot of value, and instead you exchange it for something of little value. That's a bad deal, right? Everybody agree, okay? When you take it back to a biblical context, you think of different things that happened in Scripture of bad deals. There's a couple things that maybe come to mind. You, we may think back to Luke chapter 12 and, and the rich fool, that he was bringing in his crops, and it probably wasn't even him bringing in his crops. It, I mean, it was, honestly, it was probably his servants that were bringing, bringing in the harvest. They had so much, they had nowhere to put it. They didn't have enough space to put their harvest. And so he said, oh, you know what? I'm going to tear down all my barns, and I'm going to make bigger ones. I'm going to build these massive barns so I now have plenty of space to put all my stuff. And so he gets the barns built, he brings in the harvest, and he says to himself, you know, soul, we're doing pretty good. We're doing good. You know what? Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. This is the life. And God said to him, fool, that tonight your soul is required of you. Basically, this man exchanged something of great value, his own soul, for something of so little value, massive barns, big things that he could have, to where he could feel important. He made a bad deal. There's one bad deal that you all may be thinking of as well, and it was the, the passage that was read for us a minute ago. Let's think back to Esau, the deal that he made with Jacob. Everybody be turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to spend some time there for a minute. I want us to look at really what this meant that Esau did, this deal he made with Jacob. Now, while you're turning there, I want to explain a couple things. I think there's two things that we really need to understand for us to, to really grasp what kind of deal Esau just made. One of them is a birthright. Now, it says that, that Esau was making a deal with his birthright. So what is that? 
I mean, what, what does your birthright really mean? Well, in Old Testament times, your birthright really what it was, it was the rights that came along with you being the firstborn son in your family. Now, there's a lot of things that kind of go with that. One of the big things was that if the father was ever out of pocket, maybe he was out of town, or maybe even the father passes away, you basically step in as the leader of your family. You take the father's place while he's not there. That means you get the say-so of what goes on. People are supposed to respect you and to, to listen to your decisions. So you have a, main, a major responsibility in leading your family when the father's not there. But here's the one thing of the birthright that we typically think of. In Deuteronomy, we're told that the firstborn son gets a double portion of the inheritance. That's what most people think of when they think of their birthright. And so when it's time to start splitting the inheritance up among the family, you may have five, six children. The oldest son gets double what everybody else gets. So what was Esau really giving up then? So that's one thing. That's what a birthright is. How big was Esau's birthright? So when he's wanting to make this deal with Jacob, so what? I mean, some people may be thinking, yeah, I get a double portion of my inheritance. No, double of nothing is still nothing. So what? I mean, what's the big deal? So when you look back to what Esau was going to inherit from his father, from Isaac, do we understand the inheritance that Isaac was going to be leaving to Esau? To really understand that, what about Abraham? Remember, Esau was Abraham's grandson. So what was Isaac going to be getting from Abraham as an inheritance? Well, you're in Genesis 25. You, it, you may have to flip a page back. In Genesis 24, listen to what it says in verse 34 and 35. It says, So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly and has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, camels and donkeys. You may think on back to Genesis chapter 12 when the promise that God made to Abraham that said, Look, I'm going to bless anyone who blesses you, and I'm going to curse anyone who curses you. You may remember when Abraham and Lot, when they split ways. Lot went to live in the, the lush, rich grassland area, what it looked like, and ended up over in Sodom and Gomorrah. All right? Now, this was before Sodom and Gomorrah got destroyed. After Lot had already gone there, you may remember there was a war that happened. There was a battle between kings of several different areas. Sodom and Gomorrah were mixed up in that battle. Lot and his family were in trouble. And somebody came and found Abraham and told him, your nephew Lot needs help. So Abraham gathered 318 fighting men from within his servants. And they went and basically helped win the war and rescued Lot and the rest of his family. Abraham had th not just 318 servants. He had 318 servants that were trained to fight in war. How massive was this operation, basically, that Abraham was running, that he had control of? And so the inheritance then that Isaac was going to get was massive, which in turn means Esau was, was in a place to inherit a great wealth and a great amount of stuff through Abraham and through Isaac. And so the birthright that Esau had, more than likely, was going to be huge. It was going to be huge. So let's start reading then. So we heard a minute ago that Esau was a skilled hunter, right? So go back to Genesis 25. In verse 29, it says, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how weary Esau was. All right? So he's been out hunting. I mean, how hungry do you really get? Let's say you haven't eaten all day. Maybe his blood sugar's dropped. We don't know. 
But there, there's been studies showing that people have gone weeks at a time without food. I mean, on just complete starvation, and they've survived. They've lived. I mean, Christ himself fasted for 40 days, right? So we know the human body can go a long, long time without food. And so Esau comes in, and he's just, oh, he's, he's devastated. He's got to have something to eat right then. I have a hard time believing that Esau's really been weeks without food. I mean, they're in this same encampment and everything else that probably all of Abraham's servants were in at this time. How many search parties would have been sent out looking for Esau if he's been gone for weeks and literally had nothing to eat? There, I mean, it's all hands on deck. People are going and looking for Esau. So maybe he's been out for a day, maybe a couple days, that he's been out camping, he's been hunting, and he comes in and I'm hungry. I've got to have something to eat. And so, let's read verse 30 here. It says, And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with some of that red stew from weary. That's a reasonable request, right? He goes into his brother. His brother's sitting there cooking some food. He's, he's exhausted. He's got to have something to eat. Anybody would have given him something to eat, right? I don't think any of us in our right mind would have said, No, nah, get out of here. They would have given him some food. But listen to Jacob's response. Verse 31. It says, But Jacob said... Sell me your birthright. <laughs> what? We just heard what a birthright was, and we just heard what Esau stood to inherit. Do you think Esau understood what his birthright was? You better believe it. He knew exactly what he was eventually going to have someday. So he understood the value of this birthright that he had. Why would Jacob in his right mind even ask for that? I mean, that's ridiculous of a trade to be made. But... Let's keep reading in verse 32. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. He got a bowl of lentils. Now do you all know what a lentil is? Without getting real deep into horticulture and everything else, a lentil is basically like a bean, okay? He got bean soup, beanie weenies, if you want to think of it. It says that he got soup of lentils and bread, pinto beans and cornbread. Esau gave up everything for a bowl of beans and some bread. This is ridiculous. Why would somebody do this? And like I said, remember all these servants that were probably in this same encampment. He walks into his. If Jacob said, okay, well, you have to give me everything that you stand to inherit someday in order for me to give you some soup, I think I'd have walked out of that tent over to the next tent. The person over there would have probably fed me. How many people would have been falling all over themselves to give Esau something to eat if he was really in that big of a need? But he didn't. For some reason, he gave it all up. He gave up everything he had just so that he could have something to eat. Now, as valuable as Esau's birthright was, believe it or not, all of us, we have something so much more valuable than what his birthright was. We have a soul. We have a soul that God has given to every one of us. How valuable is our soul to us? What kind of games do we play when it comes to the value of our soul. And you may be thinking, Jonathan, that's ridiculous. 
I don't play games with my soul. I understand how important my soul is and how important my relationship with God is. I don't do those kinds of things. Well, I would have said the same thing about Esau and his birthright, but you know what? Esau did it. How much do we really value our soul? Turn over to Mark chapter 8 real quick. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and read verse 37. I think this is a passage that, that we've all heard before. Mark chapter 8, verse 37, it says, and this is Christ speaking, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, it may surprise you that I say the answer to that question is everything. We will give anything for our soul. But notice it said, what will a man give for his soul? Which means somebody else has control of your soul. What are you willing to give in order to get control of that soul back? I give anything. Wealth, possession, fame, knowledge, you name it, it doesn't matter. I will give up everything to have that soul back. And I don't think there's anybody you could ever ask that question to that would answer it any differently. And so the answer to that rhetorical question that Christ is asking is, the expectation for the answer, you give anything. Everything you have, you give up for your soul. And that's an easy decision. When we're standing at the day of judgment, yes, I want my soul. But you know what? By the time you, we get there, it's too late. The decision for how valuable our soul is has to be made while we're still here living on this earth. When we get to judgment day, there's, there's no more changing it. Let's back up then in Mark chapter 8. Let's look at verses 34 through 36. Again, this is Christ speaking. It says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It really boils down to one question. What do I see as being more valuable than my soul? Just like Esau had to make the decision, what is more valuable to me than my birthright? He decided a bowl of soup was. Do we make that same decision with our souls today based on the way that we live our life? Let's talk for a minute about athletics. I grew up on a ball field and in a gym. I've loved athletics my entire life. That's what I knew when I was a kid. If I wasn't playing a game, I was probably at a ball field watching my sisters play. I love sports, so I absolutely understand the draw that sports can have on us in our lives. One thing I am happy about, though, is travel ball. It existed when I was a kid, but it ain't nothing like it is today. AAU and all this stuff where you're traveling all over the country doing all this stuff, we just went and played and went home. Now you got people traveling all over the United States to go play in tournaments every weekend, which in my mind is just nuts, but people do that. Most sports have some type of a ball, all right? Baseball. This is Tucker, so I'm borrowing all kinds of stuff from my kids today. There's a little baseball. Let this represent sports as a whole. How many of us spend so much time, not just for ourselves, but maybe for our children or our grandchildren or our nieces or our nephews, revolved around this ball? Before we immediately say that, you know what, we would never do anything, we would never give up anything in exchange for our soul, what do we give up for this? What do we do in our lives to tell everybody that I give this value, that, that I see importance in this? And it may not just be 
basketball or baseball or football. It could be fishing. It could be hunting. It can be recreation of any kind. Let's all lump that together and let it be represented by this ball right here. All right? So how many of us will spend day after day trying to perfect a skill to hit this thing or to maybe throw it through a basket or kick it into a net or hand it to somebody and let them, let them run it down a field or be able to hold my, my breath steady as I look through a scope. We will put time and time and effort into making sure that we can do it and that we're good at it. You know, when Christ was telling the parable of the soils, there was seed that fell among the thorny ground, right? Well, that seed grew. It became a plant. But the thorns sprang up around it, and those thorns represented the cares of the world. And eventually those thorns got in so tight and so close around that plant that it they just squeezed all the life out of it. And that represented the soul that it got so caught up in all these other worldly things going on that the plant just died. Its soul was gone at that point. How often do we spend hour after hour? We will spend paycheck after paycheck. We will sit down with our kids and we'll watch video of games and we'll go and talk to them. It's like, hey, you need to do this. You need to do that. How many of us will sit down with our spouse and look at our budget to make sure that we have enough money freed up that we can go on this weekend ball trip? To make sure we can afford that hotel room, the food that we need while we're there. It's a, it's a great hobby. Like I said, I, I don't want to bash sports, so don't, take, don't think that that's what I'm saying. But at the end of the day, how many of us will spend hour after hour Paycheck after paycheck. Sit and talk to our family that we will plan to ensure that our family never misses a worship service. That we will ensure our kids are never out of a Bible class. How many of us will sit down with our spouse and we'll look at our budget to ensure that we have the money available to give back to the Lord like he commanded? How can we do all those things for this? But when it comes to the church, it's just... You know what, if we, if we got time, we'll be there. If something better comes up, then, then it comes up, and, and we'll deal with it. And you may be thinking to yourself, okay, Jonathan, hold on a second. My kids are past that age. My kids aren't interested in sports. They don't care anything about it. I'm well out of that part of my life. This, this doesn't really relate to me. How many are watching the Predators right now? We're watching the playoffs right now. They're up two to nothing on the avalanche. And, man, you've got excitement around it right now. Everybody's fired up wanting to watch the Predators play. Baseball season's starting. I've got excited about that. Me and Tucker sit and watch the Yankees. You been following Tennessee Tech's baseball here lately? You know, they've won 19 games in a row. They have the longest winning streak of any base, collegiate baseball team in the country right now. And if it doesn't get rained out, they play at 1 o'clock this afternoon at Murray State, hoping to stretch it to to 20 games in a row. USA Today, coaches poll has them ranked, well, they're about 26th or 27th right now in the country. Different collegiate magazines have them ranked in the top 25 in the country. They are doing fantastic. You know, me and the kids the other day, we had, uh, Jenna had gone to a ladies retreat uh, with Willow Avenue. And of course, I guess at ladies retreats, they decide to stay up to three or four o'clock in the morning. And so she got home on Saturday and she wanted to go home and take a nap, wanted to rest. So me and the kids, we were in town. I was trying to keep them away from the house purposely to let Jenna rest. Well, 
Tennessee Tech had a baseball game. So like, you know what, we'll just drive over there. Okay, it snowed. I don't know if you all remember Saturday, Saturday when it snowed. We went and sat at the Tennessee Tech baseball game. We thought it would be a great idea because we didn't go planning for snow. So we froze and we lasted to the bottom of the first inning. And we left and went home. But do you know how many people were out there wrapped up in parkas that they had these massive Coleman sleeping bags that they were sitting in to keep warm to sit there and watch a baseball game? But how many of us fuss and gripe when the preacher goes five minutes too long? That sermon's supposed to be 30 minutes, not 40. I had plans I had to go over here and do. I'm now going to have to wait an extra 10 minutes when I want to go out to eat lunch on Sunday afternoon because that preacher went too long. But we will sit for hours upon hours and watch a game. How many of us on will sit on our couch in our recliner at home and we will watch these ball games on TV? And that's fine. During football season, I know we're in the off-season right now for football, but during football season, on Saturday watching collegiate football, on Sundays watching the NFL, we will sit for hours upon hours that we can tell you the lifetime stats of our favorite players since we were a child. We know everything about them. But how many of us can name the 12 tribes of Israel? How many of us know the book, chapter, and verse of the passages that we need to be able to teach somebody what it takes to be a Christian? and to save their own soul. And so before we say that there's not anything in this world that we would exchange our soul for, that we find more valuable than our soul, what value do we place on this right here in comparison to the value that we place on our own soul and our Christianity? All right, so let's back off sports for a minute. Let's look at our jobs. And I know that we have to, we have to work for a living. I mean, the Bible tells us that, right? We have to earn a living. We have to make money for our family. I mean... The man who won't do that is condemned in Scripture. So I understand that. But if some of us had a money tree in our backyard, we might quit our jobs. All right? I don't want to go to work every day. I have a bucket list I want to go down. I want to travel. I want to do this. I want to do that. Okay, that's fine. But you know what? There's a lot of people that wouldn't. If, if money was no object, why would some people keep at their jobs? Maybe that there's a noble reason behind it, that, that they're doing something to help somebody. But, you know, for a lot of people, there's, there's a lot bigger reason why they would keep at their jobs, even when, reality, they didn't need to. It's because they want power. They want to be somebody that people in this world look at and say, I want to be that guy, or I want to be that lady. That's somebody who's important. That's somebody who's got it together. That's somebody, when they speak, the room gets quiet and they listen to them. I want to be that person. That's why a lot of people work at their jobs. They want to climb this corporate ladder. They want to get to the top so they have control. And I know I used this analogy six, seven years ago, I guess, in an invitation here. But Dave Ramsey, in one of his books, and Dave Ramsey, if you're not familiar with Dave Ramsey, we can Google him, look him up, talking about financial everything. One of the analogies he uses in one of his books is about climbing this corporate ladder. And we take this ladder and we get it firmly planted in the ground. We make sure it's not going to move. And we see this rung in front of us, the very first one, and we focus on putting our, our foot on that first rung. And we're going to give everything we can to get up that rung. And then when we do, we focus on this next rung. And we keep climbing and we keep climbing. And you know what? Eventually, if you have that focus, you will get to the top of that ladder. Only to look around and realize your ladder was leaned against the wrong building. 
because we're so focused on this task that's in front of us that we forget to step back and see everything else. If we put too much emphasis on our notoriety, on our popularity, that we just want to achieve this goal, are we selling our soul for fame and fortune? For being somebody who's looked at as being a great person, but at the same time, we'll turn around and lose our soul because of it. You know what? I can't cook. I don't know how to cook. I'm not very good at it. You probably do not want to eat anything I ever cook. Right? But I can make one thing. I make cereal. And, and not the cereal you have to do on a stove and stuff. That's, that's cooking again. It's this dry cereal. Lucky Charms is great. I even ate a bowl. I think it was Cinnamon Toast Crunch or the off-brand of it this morning. I can make a mean bowl of cereal. It wasn't too long ago I sat down on a Friday night and said, and I know you shouldn't do this before you go to bed, but I did it anyways. So I'm going to eat me a bowl of Lucky Charms before I go to bed. And I'm just going to eat one. And everybody knows why you only eat one bowl of cereal. Because if you keep eating it, you're going to be miserable. It's like it takes 15, 20 minutes for all that milk and everything to get down into your stomach, and it just feels awful. I mean, you just want to go lay down and blah. So I said, all right, I'm going to eat my one bowl of cereal that Friday night. Three bowls later, I finished the box off. And I even told myself when I sat down, you're not going to eat more than one bowl of cereal because you're going to feel horrible and you're getting ready to go to bed. I did it anyways. How many of us will trade our souls for just a few minutes of pleasure? I kept eating the cereal because it was good, and I liked it. Even knowing there was misery coming after the fact. But how many of us do that with our spiritual lives? You know, we're told in 1 John chapter 2, it says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, his love's not in the Father. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but all of that is of this world. And the world's passing away and all the lust in it, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. Even when we know that we should limit ourselves in the things that we do, for some reason there's this temptation, and the temptation's real, and the temptations are very strong, that, that wants to drag us over to this thing that we know that we should not be doing. But we see it and it looks good. And we desire it and we want it. How many of us are willing to sell our soul for a few minutes of pleasure? Think back to Esau. He temporarily was going to get something that was going to make him feel better. A bowl of beans. And he gave up his birthright for that. It's ridiculous. But then how many of us will fall to these temptations that's just temporary? I mean, make no doubt about it. Some sin can be enjoyable. There's a reason there's a temptation for it. But we desire it more than we desire our souls. We see that sin as being more valuable than the way we value our souls. Now, we may not say that, but our actions say it loud and clear. You know, when you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's what we, we commonly know as the, the hall of fame of faith. These great individuals that live back in, in biblical times. And we, we hate to say characters because it makes it sound like somebody from a fictional story. These are real people that lived. These are real things that they did. One of the ones we read about in Hebrews chapter 11 was Moses. Now, do you understand the life that Moses had 
living in Pharaoh's house. It says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So when Moses was put in the basket and Pharaoh's daughter came out and found him, she took him in and after he was weaned, raised him as her own son in Pharaoh's house. Basically, he became the adopted son of the Pharaoh. Now, there's a lot of historians that believe this and take it for what it's worth. The Bible doesn't necessarily back this up. You kind of have to stretch it a little bit. But there's a lot of people that believe that at that time, the Pharaoh did not have a male heir. And so, and so Moses was being groomed to be the next Pharaoh. And then that would make sense for all the education that he had, things that you can read about that, that he had at his disposal. I mean, if he wanted to take a day off, he could probably take a day off. If he wanted somebody to come and drop grapes in his mouth while another push person stood beside him and fanned him, he probably had those resources. If he wanted power, he had it. You talk about having an easy life if he wanted it. Moses was positioned for greatness, but he gave it all up. But why did he do that? And it even says that he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Moses understood that all this stuff that he had at his disposal in Egypt was temporary. He knew that it wasn't something that was going to last. And so instead, he went to suffer because of that. But listen to what Hebrews 11 tells us, the reason he did it. It says that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. There's the key. Moses saw what was coming in the future. He knew the reward that he was after. When he's climbing this ladder, he stepped back and saw all the rest of the buildings around him. He didn't want his ladder leaned against that building in Egypt. He wanted it leaned against eternity. That's the ladder he wanted to climb. He saw the big picture. He knew the reward that was coming because of that. He didn't look at what was right in front of him. How often do we get caught up in what's right in front of us right now and, and we give everything we have into it? And that's fine. But when we do that at the expense of our soul, we have just found something that we find more valuable than our own souls. So how could we ever fault Esau for what he did, selling his birthright for a bowl of beans, if we're willing to do that same thing for our souls? You know, I mentioned earlier that if you asked anybody how valuable their soul was, they would probably tell you they would give anything, right? Most everybody would admit that. I will give anything in order to save my soul. Our souls are valuable, but do you know how we know it's valuable? You know, the value that something has is all based on what somebody will give you for it, right? I can have all the gold in the world sitting right here, but if nobody wants to pay me for it, it's not worth anything. Right? The only thing that gives something value is what somebody's willing to give in exchange for it. So how do we know that our soul is valuable? Because it's already been bought. Our soul's already been paid for. We know the price that has been put on our souls. And it wasn't all the wisdom and all the fame and all the possessions and gold and money that this world's ever been able to produce because those things pale in comparison to the price that was really paid for our souls. Our soul was paid for by the Son of God himself. That he came down and went to that cross in his own blood, the blood of deity. 
bought our souls. And do you know why Christ did that? Because he looked at every one of us and said, your soul's valuable. My soul's valuable. And he was willing to come and die a horrible, gruesome death and allow his own blood to be spilt because he saw value in our souls. So our souls have already been purchased. They're in our hands. We have possession of our souls. And the good thing is no one can take it from us. No one can come and get our souls. Even Satan himself can't take our souls from us. Only we can give it up. But if we're willing to give up our souls for a, recre a recreation, for a ball, for a game, for our jobs, for fame, for fortune, for who knows whatever else, if we're willing to give our souls up for that, we told Christ, you know what, I appreciate you coming and giving your blood for my soul. That's great and all, but I found something a little bit more valuable. I would rather just hand my soul back off that you bought for me so that I can do this little temporary thing over here instead. May we never say that through the actions of our life. May we always place the value of our souls above everything else. And that's what Christ expects from us. If he's willing to come and die for us, we need to see the value in that. Will you make the decision today if you've never made that decision? The first thing to do to show Christ that you see the value in the sacrifice that he made for you is to become a child of his. To repent. We watched the video just a minute ago in the adult class of what repentance truly is that Brother Don Blackwell explained to us. To repent of the sins that we have in our lives. To confess before this congregation that you really truly believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he came and bought your soul and then is now ascended back to sit at the right hand of God and then turn and be baptized in the water to come in contact with that life-saving blood of Christ to have those sins washed away. Or maybe you have areas in your life if you sit and, and think about, you know what, I'm not placing the importance on my soul that I should and I'm doing that through my actions. If you have a need that needs to be made right today, we ask that you come and let the congregation know about it and we can pray for you as we stand and as we sing.